Welcome everyone to uh, the 89th uh, edition of the podcast. Seems incredible to think that we've had 89 weeks of shows, uh, with the odd break of course. Uh, Welcome along. And the reason why the 89th is kind of significant is because we are going to do a special, uh, like the one on Rally a few weeks ago. Uh, This week we are doing, with the number 89, what other special could we do than uh, the 1989 Tour de France? Um, obviously known as the greatest of the modern era. Uh, we'll do a spoiler. Uh, the finish was the closest um, ever, eight seconds, after three weeks of racing between uh, Greg LeMond and Laurent Fignon. The traditional Champs-Élysées finish uh, was ditched, the uh, sprinter's finish, in favour of a time trial. Now, whether that, uh, whether that contributed to uh, how the race finished is, uh, is kind of uh, open to uh, suggestion. It's kind of a moot point. Um, or whether the race, you know, even if the final time trial had been on the traditional Saturday before the end, then whether that would have, uh, you know, it would have still been that, that close anyway. Anyway, we're getting ahead of it. Three weeks ahead of ourselves. The race itself was uh, one of those uh, tours that doesn't start in France. It started just over the border in Luxembourg with uh, with a prologue and time trial which started the race really in the way that, that it carried on because the defending champion um, Pedro Delgado missed his start time in the time trial uh, I'm always paranoid about doing that I'd always, I'm always like cutting a couple of minutes off my warm up to make sure that I'm at the start line on time and I think probably with hindsight Pedro wishes he'd done that as well uh, but anyway, he didn't, and he was a long, long way behind before the end of the first uh, the first day, really, which kind of left the tour, you know, kind of wide open as it went into that first week. Um, there was a home stage win for Casio de Silva, who was kind of like a Portuguese Luxembourgese, if that's even a, a nationality. Um, before on the second day, it was just one of the probably the last split stage that I remember. There might have been one in 1990, but anyway, this was a split stage road race in the morning. The team time trial was in the afternoon. Delgado managed to get dropped by his uh, team. Um, I think, you know, he... And I think there was a lot of thought and feeling at the time, and obviously there was no internet or anything like that. We had a weekly newspaper on the Tour de France published by Winning, an American magazine. Um, There was a lot of speculation on that first... Monday of the tour that Delgado's morale was broken and that you know he'd got no desire really to make Paris um, so yeah the first week kind of progressed as those sort of weeks of, of Tour de France's do before we got to the first uh, time trial big time trial of the race and the sensation that uh, Greg LeMond uh, was um, he got some revolutionary new handlebars uh, and to think that you know there was a time where people rode time trials without uh, the tri bars on is, is you know it's, you, it's, you know you think it's foolish nowadays. That tuck position is is kind of integral, and even on the you know the most standard of club tens, you will see pretty much ninety nine percent of the field using them, unless someone's you know riding their standard road bike to do a bit of power training. Anyway, that 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 revolutionary new handlebar came out. Of course, as with anything like that, there was a lot of debate as to whether or not he could or couldn't use it. Think of the golf ball skin suit Sky had in the tour this year and you get the picture. But Le Monde 
did enough to win. And his backstory at that time was that he'd won the tour in the famous Bernardino events, um, but then he'd managed to get shot by his brother, uh, brother-in-law, whilst hunting. Uh, he'd got a lot of lead in his kidney, he'd come back, he'd fallen off, he'd broke his arm. His ride with the PDM team, who were the big dominant team of that time, didn't work out, so he was on a small, you know, Belgian team. It's, it's almost like Vincenzo Nibali riding this tour for Verandas Villains, this year's tour. That kind of, that kind of, a fall from grace would be, in a, you know, would be an unfair thing to say, but that kind of context. So for Le Mans to uh, win the time trial and get the yellow jersey, it was great, but I don't think anyone particularly felt that, that he would win because Fignon was quite close. Uh, and then the mountains kind of came. We had a Robert Miller stage win for Britain, um, riding for Zed, uh, that wondrous kit, at Super Bannier. Um, we also saw the uh, the leader's jersey change hands there. Greg Le Mans, he sort of blew spectacularly in the final, even half a kilometre to the summit of the mountain. Um, but, you know, he kept in touch with Fignon. Uh, Fignon then lost a bit more time to Greg in the time trial at Orsia Merlet in the shadow of Alpe d'Huez. Um, and, you know, we saw the, 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 the great battle for the lead changing hands. We saw the PDM team going for stage wins, Stephen Rooks, Gert Jan Turnisser. Uh, Rooks won the time trial, Turnisser won on the Alpe, Alpe d'Huez, um, where Rooks had won the year before. But, and I remember when I was riding at Alpe d'Huez, I got to the actual point where Fignon kind of attacked Le Monde, uh, 4Ks out. And it's probably the hardest 4Ks of the mountain after that, until you get into the into the resort. And I thought then, you know, Fignon, you should, even now, sort of all these years later, maybe Long should have uh, should have been able to drill home his advantage more and, and get a bit more time out of Greg in that last four, 3.8 kilometers, that sort of distance, because Greg hung in there. He was nearly at a standstill when Fignon launched his attack, but he absolutely nailed keeping back up and you know it's probably one of the great images of Greg is is you know that yellow jersey the fluoro yellow and uh, and um and blue ADR shorts the obviously the day before days before helmets were compulsory so you could see his uh, the sweat in his hair and the Oakleys and you know he looked uh, he looked like he was uh, he was really struggling but he he kept in there and he didn't lose that much time the tour it felt was lost the next day um to Villard de Lons when Fignon attacked and in the group behind the Rooks Turnister I think Le Monde rightly thought that there was two PDM riders so maybe they should have ridden to close the gap and they didn't um, and Fignon rode away and extended his lead uh, up to I think he got an extra 20 something seconds to get his lead up to 50 seconds overall it kind of felt that that was that there was one more mountain stage to go but it had a downhill finish into Aix-le-Ban and <laughs> despite a kind of almost like predating the modern era Le Monde really tried to, to put it to Fignon on the descent um, there was a couple of roundabouts that Greg went one side of one Fignon the other going into town and Le Monde won the sprint um, but there was no time gap and, and at that point you kind of looked and thought done and dusted the tour is done and dusted um, we then got to, uh, to the final Sunday in Paris and rather than the sprinters getting their, 
their day rather than the sprinters getting their day. It was uh, it was the time trial, only um, only just over ten miles if my memory serves me. Uh, so you know that sort of distance that us club cyclists can kind of judge ourselves against. Um, Le Monde went first out of the two uh, because of the order, the, the time trials are run in the order of, of classment. And Fignon hadn't adopted the time trial bars. There was a bit of speculation that he might, but he had gone front or front and back disc wheel, something that you'd never see nowadays, but he'd gone front and back disc wheel, despite there being a little bit of breeze in the air, and that would cost him. Um, Le Monde started quick, and actually got actually got quicker in the in the days before negative splits were a thing, which they obviously are now. This was probably the most definitive negative split time trial ever. He started off quickly. The first time check, he'd put sort of 12, 13 seconds into Fignon, enough to panic the Frenchman, um, who then tried to go harder and faster, but was struggling with two disc wheels to keep to you know to keep them on the island. And by the time. They got close to the Champs Elysees. It was, you know, really close, and no one could call it. And Greg, he just uh, he just managed to, to to drill it up and down the uh, up and down the cobbles before almost catching Pedro Delgado, who was his two-minute man, um, to, uh, to to record his time. And uh, he actually was quite reasonably composed. He was uh, for for the finish of a, of a Tour de France time trial with the the GC on the line. He was able to stand. He was almost. You know, kind of, it's kind of salient, and, and and he stood there and he waited. Just uh, well, as it happened, nearly three minutes for Fignon to arrive. The two minutes plus the 58 seconds that Le Monde had beaten him by in, in the time trial, and and Fignon was rattling his biggest gear over the cobbles and absolutely giving it everything. But you know, the handlebars had cost him, the disc wheel had cost him. The other thing that then people started to note was the fact that Le Monde had got a really long, one of the first uh, Giro Aero helmets. Fignon had got his ponytail fluttering in the breeze. You know, and nowadays we would talk about the, you know, the loss of watts that that, that had caused him. Obviously, back in those days, it, it wasn't quite as understood. So, of course, Fignon rattled through the finish line. The tour had gone. The tour had gone. Uh, and you know, compared to Le Monde, he fell straight off his bike onto the cobbles. Couldn't get up. He, you know, he put absolutely everything into that, his heart and his soul, as a Parisian. And he, he you know, he'd come up short. And it, it was significant in the in the way that you know, it it was only uh, it was only the second, this only the second win um, by an American, and only the third win by an English-speaking tour rider, Stephen Roach being the other in '87, and it. In years to come, I think people will look back and think this was was part of the the way, paving the way to prove that, you know, that that people from outside the traditional France, Belgium, Spain, Italy, Holland could could win the Tour. Um, And it was just, you know, a fascinating race. I just remember, you know, snapping up the, the newspapers, reading it on the school bus, um, I remember getting home from school every day to watch the, the highlights in the evening, um, and it was just a you know a fantastic a fantastic time really to be a cycling fan because it was it was really exciting you know you got you you didn't have Twitter updates so you got home in the evening and you watched the race and you didn't know whether the yellow jersey had changed hands or not. It's not like you know it's not like Five Live covered it like they do nowadays, and you were living that tour in the moment it, it, was, it was just brilliant it was just brilliant and 
I think if there's one cyclist I would like to, uh, you know, to maybe go out, have a dinner and a beer with and talk about their career, I think Greg would be up there. It's no secret that I'm a massive uh, Le Mans fan. You know, my my pilgrimage to Alpe d'Huez was was as much about retracing Greg's steps as, uh, as anything else. As was, you know, whenever I go to Belgium, I'm always looking, you know, I was delighted this year to, uh, to, to, to you know, to see Cortric, the city where he lived when he was out there, you know, based out in, in Europe. So, no secret that I'm a Greg fan. And um, it, you, you, the impact of it on, on Laurent was, was much, much worse, I think, than, than people anticipated. He, he never competed for a Grand Tour again. He moved to Gatorade to ride in service of Gianni Bugno. Um, he did get a, a, an excellent Tour de France, like an, an es- escapologist lone stage win. Over in the days when you could still have a lone stage win on a, something other than a mountain stage. Uh, to Mulhouse. Um, daring escape. Brilliant stuff. Again, brilliant to watch, Vignon. And um, But sadly, the, the, the story has has the sad ending that, that he contracted cancer and, and sadly died but not before he wrote probably the best book on cycling you'll ever get the chance to read it's called we, it's called we Were Young and Carefree it's his biography it is available in English if you haven't make sure you read it because not only does it give you a little bit of his insight into that that tour um, but it gives you a bit of insight into the aftermath you know the fact that you, you, you couldn't get out of bed all of those kind of things just because of you know how much it would have affected him so there you go the 89 tour for the 89th edition of the Fendrian cast we're not going to continually do this you know we're not going to do the, the <laughs> maybe we'll track down Claudio Chiapucci and interview him next week for our 1990 tour review or not um, we'll need to get on with, uh, with previewing the season won't we with the tour down under on its way um, so yeah thank you very much for listening again uh, please make sure that you um, subscribe to us on your whatever podcast platform you use and uh, make sure that you follow the website the Instagram all of that kind of stuff and we will be back um, hopefully same time next week and talking tour down under so uh, thanks guys and see you next week